Welcome back to Talk IP with RNG. I'm Rebecca Conroy, member of the BD and marketing team at Ready and Gross. And today we're revisiting a recording of a live panel discussion on how to leverage the Unified Patent Court. The discussion covers key aspects of patent enforcement and revocation at the UPC, and particularly how the UPC may be leveraged by companies in three key technology sectors. You'll be hearing from my colleagues, Zach Mummery, Robin Ellis, Zimon Lud, and Paul Luce Allen, as they consider how experience of EPO opposition proceedings will help parties navigate the UPC and consider how both common and civil law will play key roles in the new system just two weeks after the UPC opened its doors. Stay with us till the end as Zach reflects on what we've learned so far on the sixth month anniversary today. Hi, welcome to today's panel discussion. My name is Zach Mummery. I'm a partner based at a London office whose practice focuses on chemistry and pharmaceutical technologies. Today I'm joined by three colleagues, Robin Ellis, who's a partner based in our Munich office, working in also in the in the pharmaceutical space. Zimon Ludd, who is a, also a partner and patent attorney in our Munich office, who specialises in technology in the telecoms and software space. And Dr. Paul Lustalan, who is a partner based in our London office, specialising in advanced engineering and uh, healthcare technology. And all of the panelists joining me today have significant uh, experience in contentious proceedings, both at EPA and also um, in courts across Europe. It's been two weeks since the UPC opened its doors, and we thought it would be an interesting opportunity to reflect a bit on what has happened so far, but also think ahead to the future and consider how companies across these three technology areas that, that are represented today by uh, the panel and how those companies will, will leverage uh, the UPC going forward. So to kick things off, um, we're going to jump into a series of questions for the panel and I'll start start today's uh, panel discussion with the first question, which is how do you see European patent attorneys being involved in the new court? And I'm going to pass over to Robin to take that. Um, <clears throat> thanks very much, Zach. Uh, well, I think it's a really exciting time to be a patent attorney as this new system um, commences. Certainly from my experience in Europe, the patent attorney has always played a very important role in um, litigation on continental Europe. Uh, they tend to work together with, um, with IP lawyers, particularly when revocation is playing an important part. And I think the structure of the UPC court or the U Unified Patents Court is going to um, very much reflect this continental European approach. So in that regard, I think we will see teams of lawyers and patent attorneys working together uh, to get the best results for the client. And in that regard, I think um, I, I see the role of the patent attorney being incredibly important. Um, the other really interesting aspect of, 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 of this new court is that it's going to have technical judges. And whilst there is a lot of discussion about 
um, of where these technical judges are going to come from at the moment. They are either going to be um, part-time part-time judges who also act as as uh, patent attorneys, or retired judges from other jurisdictions, or retired board of appeal members, for example, from from the European Board of Appeal. So, whatever the final solution is, there's going to be a strong. There appears to be a strong bias towards people from the patent attorney profession, and so in that regard, uh, we will play a very um, we will have an idea about why people are likely to um, or how these technical judges are, are likely to be thinking. And then finally, we feel that revocation actions are likely to be very similar to and reflect EP opposition proceedings in both speed and structure and the way um, arguments and, and, and submissions are made. And so there we feel that our experience before the European Patent Office will play an important role for us. Um, or a very important role for our clients in terms of dealing with the the new procedures that the the new court is going to um, going to 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 to, 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 to use. Thanks, Robin. Um, so, what to what extent do you envisage the UPC being used for enforcement um, across advanced engineering, telecommunication, and, and life sciences sectors? And actually, I wonder if um, each of you, um, or, or at least um, Paul, could could perhaps uh, give us a view so far of, of, of what we're seeing in terms of actions that have, that have already been brought in these first two weeks. So I'll, I'll pass to Paul to uh, give us some thoughts from the advanced engineering side. Yeah, thanks, Zach. Um, I mean, I should probably start off by saying that advanced engineering probably covers a, a multitude of sectors, obviously. Um, but taking it as a whole as sort of being any sort of um, any sort of engineering automotive, et cetera. Um, what I've been seeing over the last few years, at least in the UK, is is what looks like an increase in litigation in this area, um, although albeit it's a broad tech sector. Um, and some of that some of that is led by the automotive. Uh, industry being a bit more um, litigious because they're bringing in new technologies from other areas and particularly telecoms and I will I won't say too much about that because Simon has much more experience than I do um, but I but given the UPC's uh, desire to be fast perhaps getting decisions within 12 months maximum uh, lower cost, certainly lower cost than running multiple um, national actions. Um, uh, I think we can potentially see some more uh, more litigation in this in this sector. People enforcing rights that they may not have enforced before, um, but that remains to be seen. However, um, as you say, we, we've had a couple of weeks worth now of. Uh, seeing what actions have been launched so far um, and it's not a complete picture because you can't search for all of the all of the cases some of them have uh, some of the cases have been filed we, we can't see yet but of the ones we can see roughly half you would probably say are in uh, in the advanced engineering field in some shape or form which is which is quite interesting um, uh, and some of those are potentially actually quite low, uh, low value actions, uh, implying that perhaps now more people are um, 
are thinking, right, well, I'm going to enforce enforce my rights and maintain my position and um, perhaps even just leverage um, leverage their rights that they've they've already got in Europe, but perhaps aren't already using. Um, it's uh, it will be interesting to see, of course, what happens going forward. But um, but yeah, it could be it could be a good time for those um, for those SMEs, perhaps that uh, want to enforce rights more uh, at a lower cost than than they could have done before. I think that's an interesting point because I, I think that was one of the sort of key uh, key key sort of aims underlying this new system was to to perhaps make litigation that bit easier and more cost effective for smaller companies who don't have such deep pockets and vast IP litigation budgets. Yeah, uh, Zeman, what how how do you feel um, the the situation? How how do you see the EPC being used or or so far and and in the future in the telecommunications sector? So. Among the first cases uh, we, we are able to uh, identify in the uh, official uh, register and um, also a further source of information was uh, just uh, yesterday uh, a presentation by the European Patent Litigators, uh, Litigators Association. Um, we see that uh, the telecom sector has uh, um, probably uh, yeah, a percentage of, of, of 15 to 20 percent of the cases. And uh, we see among the cases that uh, um, one uh, quite famous uh, fabless semiconductor uh, manufacturer or distributor uh, from the US uh, who was uh, recently in the last two years very active against uh, German uh, car manufacturers uh, filed an infringement action. And um, also from the feedback of uh, our clients, we, we see that um, there's uh, 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 a lot of uh, caution and uh, a lot of questions uh, regarding the uh, value of dispute. And uh, also from the, from the, from the uh, leaked information, we get a first interesting picture of these uh, value of disputes, uh, uh, not in the telecom sector, but in other sectors. Uh, um, we have uh, Probably at least it looks like a value of disputes uh, up to 100 millions. And um, also, we do not have that many as expected, uh, very low value of disputes. So, only uh, half a million, which is the lowest um, um, border in the UPC uh, staircase of uh, stepping up the, the values of dispute. So, we are quite high with the value uh, of dispute. And um, so I think this is important information which has to be confirmed because uh, for the client, the value of dispute is an important uh, economic factor in patent litigation. So uh, I think we get a more uh, complete picture if we also see uh, more decisions on the, on the value of, of dispute and have a better picture there. But I think in the beginning, in the first wave, uh, um, parties from the, from the telecom sector were quite sure about the situation. So. A good validity, clear infringement. Probably, uh, I think they don't they don't care about the uh, value of dispute. Um, so I think that's what, what we are seeing at the moment. And I know that the one one thought was that the non-practicing entities, of which I think there are perhaps many in in the software and telecoms field, would be launching actions to enforce their patents on a pan-Europe uh, basis. 
at, at, at an early stage. Have we seen any, any evidence of that yet? Non-practicing entities beginning to enforce rights in uh, before the EPC? Or is it still too uh, early to, to tell? I think it's too early. And uh, uh, so up to now, we, we haven't see, seen, seen much action uh, there. Um, this might change in the future. Um, mm -hmm. When it comes to, to, to patent uh, litigation, what's interesting is that um, it looks like, and this is also a preliminary uh, uh, information because it's not from the official uh, registry, um, that we have some standalone revocation actions. And so this might be an indication that uh, patent litigation is uh, uh, involved because if you actively uh, defend against uh, uh, patent holds, you, you, you start the uh, uh, fight for the nullity action then. So, Robin, how, how do you see things um, from the pharma perspective? Is it a different picture to what we've discussed so far? I mean, if you asked me that question before this all kicked off, my sort of key thoughts were that obviously the word on the street in pharma was that all of the crown jewel patents were going to be opted out of the system. Um, that originators nonetheless wanted to um, test the system so they would potentially leave certain patents in to litigate and that we might see um, the use of divisionals to keep some um, divisionals in the system some divisionals out the system to keep all options open for those uh, those patent holders that, that that had deep pockets can afford to do that um, Obviously, it's very, very, very early to tell. But one thing from the very small sample size that you mentioned, Zach, is that um, I believe the majority, if not all of the revocations that at least we were, we've been able to see have been in the pharma space. Mm -hmm. um, and that is interesting. It's certainly a useful um, tool for um, parties to clear the way, which is certainly if from, from a generic and biosimilar perspective has been a very important strategy in the past. Um, but one has to ask the question, if the important patents are being left out of the system, what, what are you clearing the way? You know, what are you getting out of the way? And so one way that I can potentially see the system developing is that it might encourage uh, patent holders to leave in these, these weaker rights um that they wouldn't normally litigate um but use the system to litigate them so I, I i wonder if what we'll see is actually an increase across all forums in life science litigation as crown jewels are litigated in um national courts and less critical patents are also litigated in in the UPC um, because one thing's for sure in in pharma and biotech litigation is that money rarely plays an, an issue um, so the discussions that we've been having about um, value of dispute that's not going to be deterring um, parties uh, in the way that it might deter um, patent holders and indeed um, people looking to clear the way in, in other sectors. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting. I think it's going to open up a whole new world of litigation for better or worse um, with a new era, era and type of patents that we haven't maybe previously seen seen being litigated. Mm. I guess keeping with the 
theme of, of revocation actions. Uh, Paul, how how do you do you see do you see the companies um, in the engineering advanced engineering sectors be more likely perhaps to to use revocation as a tool for for any rights that they see that are not opted out and that might stand in their way? Yeah, potentially so. Particularly those ones that um, that perhaps fall in that gap between you only came across the rights after that EPO opposition window closed, but that aren't um, perhaps um, the risk isn't high enough or the um, the value of the uh, of the market isn't large enough to warrant national proceedings in lots of countries, and because one of the once you kick those off, you can you can uh, you can be sure the proprietor is going to be looking at you to uh, see whether they're going to counterclaim for infringement. For those cases, you might you may well see more revocation actions um, being kicked off. Um, but but on the other hand, I've said it might be those patents that you've missed the opposition window for. You could. I definitely envisage people using UPC revocation actions to get ahead of the EPO opposition proceedings. So file very soon after grant for those non-opted out patents a revocation action, see what the proprietor makes of your arguments um, before you then follow up with an opposition to try to take the patent out as a whole across all of those validation states outside of the UP, UPC, so UK, um, Spain, Poland, etc. Um, and indeed, uh, at least one of those revocation actions that I think Robin um, referred to was 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 that. I think the um, revocation has been uh, issued on uh, a case that we're well inside the opposition window and, and no opposition has been filed as of yet. You could well see that sort of tactic playing out, I think, um, to, uh, as I say, get ahead of what the proprietor might say and then and then bolster your opposition when you finally get to filing it. Yeah. And and I guess there's, there's quite a significant difference there because a UPC action doesn't have to wait the nine months before it commences that a, that a um, EPO opposition does. So in addition to the UPC wanting to be fast, they also have a nine month head start. So it's, um, yeah, it will be very interesting how that, that pans out, it's a good point. Yeah, I think you could you can basically get to the end of the written procedure at the UPC before having to file your opposition, which feels like putting third parties in a pretty powerful position, I think. Paul, do you have a sense for the extent to which rights were opted out in in the sectors, um, in the in the engineering, automotive, financial engineering sectors. Yeah, I, I suspect it's much like much like most other sectors, but um, certainly from uh, certainly from what I've seen, I think it's sort of those the crown jewels have, have come out um, mm -hmm. for smaller smaller companies, um, pretty much opting out everything so that they can select what goes back in if they want to. Um, and then leaving leaving in for the larger companies, leaving in the bits of their portfolio that are um, of uh, lower lower importance or don't necessarily read directly onto a product immediately that's currently on the market. Um, mm. But I think uh, I think there was a bit of a surprise at the at the uh, at the UPC as to how many rights were opted out. I think there was a perhaps a maybe a sort of order of magnitude even potentially more cases opted out than than were expected so which probably means people's 
many more cases in people's portfolios have opted out than than were mm. expected. Um, and and Simon, do you do you see? It's it's interesting that the the only actions we can see so far, the only revocation actions we can see so far, relate to to pharmaceuticals. But do you see um, tech companies um, looking to launch revocation actions? To what extent um, were were tech patents um, opted out? Do you have a sense for that? Um, yeah, it's uh, absolutely right. A little bit, it's a, it's a pity because with these uh, first revocations actions, we will probably get an idea how the central division um, will uh, produce case law on patentability. Uh, so how patentee friendly uh, these uh, divisions and courts are. Um, it, it might be this, uh, uh, that uh, people in that area do a little bit uh, like to, to, to wait more un until they uh, finally find also uh, revocation actions. Uh, definitely, we, we expect that for uh, the pending infringement actions, uh, we will have uh, counterclaims uh, for revocation mm -hmm. because uh, um, this is uh, probably the, 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 the best way to react to such an uh, infringement action. And um, from this counterclaims or revocation, we will get at least an impression how the how the local divisions will decide in case uh, um, they uh, leave the case at the local division. However, we could also be uh, happier about the new case law from the from the central divisions if the case is then redirected uh, to the to the central uh, division. So, Paul, you mentioned uh, EPA opposition proceedings earlier. How do you see the UPC revocation actions interfacing with those proceedings? How do you? Yeah. How do you, sorry, go on. So how do you, do you think? Yeah. How do you think companies will kind of negotiate those those two two very different but but also potentially co pending proceedings? Well. You, you you say quite different. I I wonder actually whether they'll be reasonably similar. The EPO opposition proceedings are becoming much more uh, uh, written submission based, um, mm -hmm. with with a one perhaps two if it's an incredibly complicated case day hearing at the end. The UPC looks to be the same for for a standalone revocation action. Obviously, it'll be a bit different if there's um, uh, either a counterclaim for infringement or if it's a counterclaim for revocation. So so actually, I suspect there will be overlap significant overlap between those arguments perhaps one uh, whatever whatever gets there first influencing the other in terms of uh, how parties might make their arguments um but of course we shouldn't forget that the epo opposition covers rights that are much broader than the upc because obviously the upc is only those um, currently 17 uh eu member states that are participating whereas the your ep patent potentially covers many more jurisdictions than that so i think oppositions will still be very important to to kill it kill that right at, at source as it were as opposed to uh, as opposed to in a court and, and robin opposition opposition uh proceedings are you know a key tool in in the arsenal of, of generic pharmaceuticals and, and, and indeed innovators um, looking to perhaps disrupt their competitors. Do you see do you see these two proceedings being used in the pharmaceutical industry, perhaps, you know, con concurrently? 
Yeah, I do. I mean, I think all the pool points Paul the Paul made were, were very good ones. I mean, the only restriction I do see there is that generic and biosimilar companies don't have um, mm. limitless um, sources of cash. Um, however, one of the points that Paul made about the the, the length of a of a hearing, you know, in the um, certainly in the the, the the farmer space you often not often it's it's not uncommon to get multiple day hearings partly because there are so many um opponents involved you know it certainly is is not rare to have double digit numbers of opponents now maybe um if the money's available let's say to be the the party that files the revocation action and you are alone um in that action um, or you're much likely to be one of much much less parties, that could be an incentive in its own right to go down that road. And potentially, even if you are confident that other other people are going to go down the opposition route, then maybe that's a way of sort of strategically placing yourself and, OK, you're putting trust in, in the other parties to do a good job. But um, I think that could certainly be a way forward. That the, the, the one party goes one route and the other parties go the other route, um, because ultimately you'd, you'd be pulling in the same direction as a as a challenger of a of a pharmaceutical patent looking to launch your generic or biosimilar product. So, um, I, I you know that's the theory. How that will pan out in practice, because it requires a bit of guts to either commit one way or the other, or a lot of money to commit to both. Um, or a lot of trust to rely on somebody else. But I think it's, a, it's let's put it this way, it's a theory that we, or an, an opportunity that hasn't existed um, mm -hmm. thus far for, for um, pharma companies looking to clear the way and may well be something we see in the future. Yeah. Um, okay, so taking a, a slightly different uh, topic now, um, one of the interesting, well, I think one of the interesting aspects of this system is the uh, potential use of protective letters, something that that might be uh, not 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 the most familiar topic to perhaps practitioners outside of Europe. Um, I wonder, Robin, if you could perhaps perhaps take take this one and and consider how you think they might be used and, and whether you've seen, I guess you wouldn't necessarily know, but or whether you've heard about um, protective letters already being filed at the EPC. Um, well, I can answer the first point first, or the second point first, in, in that I'm not aware of any protective letters. Uh, I, I have no evidence of them being filed. I only know of hearsay of them being filed. So, um, I mean, my experience of protective letters comes from they, they are very popular um, in the pharma industry in the countries where you can file them which mainly let's say is Germany there are a few other countries around Europe Simon will be able to to talk more about that process obviously the, the purpose of a protective letter is to prevent an ex-party preliminary injunction being awarded by the courts um, they are relatively easy to do. You don't have to write your entire case in writing. You just have to show the judge if a uh, application for preliminary, preliminary injunction drops on their desk, 
they're handed a protective letter and it has to effectively show to the judge, look, there's there's a case to be tried here. I can't just award an ex party PI junction without hearing the other side. The official fees for filing them are incredibly cheap at the UPC, um, a couple of hundred euros. Um, so they are certainly worth doing. If you foresee the risk of being sued and therefore the risk of an ex party PI, you'll already have looked at these patents. You'll already have an idea of what your position is, whether it's a non-infringement position, a revocate, uh, an inv invalidity position or both. Put them in a protective letter. They don't have to be long. Um, get them on file. Keep them renewed every six every six months, and then at the very least, you're stopping the risk of an ex party PI, which is not what you want to be going to your um, CEO telling them that you've just been taken off the market and you had no chance to defend yourself. So, I think the fun, interesting thing about protective letters is there aren't many people relative to the entire profession. Who know about them because they just haven't existed in the vast majority of countries but obviously um germany is one of those countries so perhaps simon has a bit more to to say on on what his thoughts are on protective letters uh thanks thanks robin but uh i, I think you gave, gave a perfect <laughs> and complete pictures uh, on protective letter letters so it's uh, hard uh, to find anything uh which uh, might be of use to add, maybe accept that uh, if, if uh, you accept LinkedIn as a source of information, uh, you can you can figure out that uh, for, for some of the heavily involved uh, UPC litigation law firms, it looked like that they uh, filed much more, something like to a factor of five more protective letter than uh, really uh, uh, infringement uh, actions. So uh, I think we can we can consider that protective letter are really uh, useful and uh, it's really really uh, advisable as, as you said uh, to file them and to use them especially if we uh, uh, also uh, as we concluded we expect something like a, a second wave of uh, UPC litigation once the first basic and fundamental questions like the value of uh, dispute uh, are resolved um, uh, regarding your point that uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, European and UPC participating uh, jurisdictions uh, uh, are not uh, used to the system, or we, we um, probably see uh, a huge German influence on this protective letter, um, also because uh, of the um, many cases that are filed in the uh, local division here in Munich. So the first judges deciding on uh, protective letters uh, will be German uh, judges. Okay, thank you. I think I think the final question for today is going to be around uh, forum shopping. So one of the interesting aspects of the new system is that there will be first instance courts in uh, many jurisdictions across Europe, and in many cases there will be a choice of which court to bring infringement proceedings. So with that in mind, um, have we seen, I, I appreciate this is very, very, still very, very early, but have we seen any any potential um, early trends emerging in, in where companies are launching infringement actions? And how do you think that 
this will develop going going forward? I think I'll, I'll hand to, to Simon to, to start us off on that one. Yeah, I think from the first statistics, we see that uh, Munich is, is, is very dominant and a lot of uh, infringement actions are uh, actually filed in, in Munich. Um, the, the, the level currently, although the number are, the numbers are, are very low, is, uh, so the ratio of the share is uh, surprising uh, high uh, to me. Um, but I think, um, yeah, I think forum shopping uh, will uh, developing. So we see um, maybe also with, with first rulings, other courts uh, uh, will have the option to, to find their niche, so to say. So if we got uh, some first uh, interesting uh, decisions from other courts, um, other courts uh, may establish a practice where, yeah, further actions are then filed with, with, with these courts because uh, one could uh, expect uh, something, which is, yeah, the basic principle of forum shopping. <laughs> Paul, do you see, do you see any, do you have any, any further uh, comments to add or maybe anything specific from your sector? Um, I, I think we could see a really interesting trend start to happen in that uh, because the UPC is is somewhat of a um, a mishmash of individual countries laws. I mean that that's sort of how it's coming to a, to effect to keep everybody happy. Lots of uh, lots of things that come from individual countries are now in the system. So we've got those protective letters from Germany, we've got uh, CESES coming in from France, etc. Um, I, I think you will see forum shopping in the sense that where a CESE is important, then you're probably going to try and go to a French court. Where where protective letters are important, perhaps you're perhaps you're at a German court. Um, where perhaps expert witnesses are more important, you might see the Nordic courts, um, the Nordic court coming into play because um, uh, Sweden, etc., have been a, a big, a big in favour of expert witness witnesses. Perhaps similar-ish to the UK. Um, uh, so I, I definitely see those those sort of things coming into play. But but, but I also see those um, those proprietors with slightly deeper pockets, almost slightly playing games, not necessarily on the forum shopping per se, but filing actions in countries where the language is perhaps going to be expensive for the other side to to end up using filing multiple actions for parents and divisionals or related cases in different courts to have those different language language aspects brought in uh, there's which sort of feels new um because it's effectively the same right for the same set of rights across multiple countries at the same time um it, it will, will it'll be interesting to see what sort of tactics that proprietors end up end up using in that in that sense um but yeah i think it's basically aiming for those judges that are used to handling um the issues in your case that are key to your case that will be the forum shopping. Robin, do you have anything else to, to yeah, add before I mean, we wrap up? Well, I guess I guess so we've we've discussed this this a lot. And I mean, I what's going to interest me is whether whether judges are going to be obviously first and foremost, it's worth noting that in these courts, it won't just be the judges of that country. They might be the majority, but they won't be the um it, it won't only be be judges from from of the nationality of the court where you've brought the action and i think what will be interesting will be to see 
Um, I think judges could go one of two ways. They could either see this as their opportunity to um, release the shackles and show that they're being incredibly European and they're not going to be very much like their national um, mindset, or they might go the other way and go incredibly um, back to type and, and act like they would have done if they were before their national court. So I think that alone will be a very interesting reaction. I think it's going to be fascinating, as as, as Paul and Simon said, how these different laws collide. Um, the Saisi, which was always such a mainstay of French um, litigation, might be completely torpedoed by a protective letter, for example, and, and how these sort of things are going to play out. Yes. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I agree with what, what everyone said. I don't, I don't think... Whilst people may try and forum shop, I don't think anybody can expect the results of what the national courts are presently offering in those those countries. Mm. Um, but they might happen, so it will just be it will just be fascinating to watch how it how it all pans out. This discussion took place just two weeks after the UPC opened its doors on the first of June, twenty twenty three, and we were reflecting on what we were expecting or, or some of the considerations that the company should take in the coming months if considering using the new system, but also reflecting on what we had learned so far in those very early days of the new UPC system. It's now been six months since the Unified Patent Court and the Unitary Patent System began, and I thought it would be interesting just to reflect on what we have learned so far and perhaps what we can uh, expect in the future. One thing that was perhaps a surprise to many of us was actually how few actions were launched in those early months. I think we thought that there would perhaps be a flurry in the first weeks of the new system coming into place, perhaps companies seeking to revoke patents that had not been opted out. But we didn't really see this. And now I think the number of cases have been steadily increasing, and I expect that that trend will continue as companies become more confident with the new system, more familiar with the new system, and as we start to see judgments being handed down by the Unified Patent Court. In terms of the actions that have been launched so far, uh, it does depend on how you count, but there have been over 70 actions now launched at the UPC, both infringement and uh, revocation actions. And in terms of the technology areas, these predominantly relate to technology in the telecoms, consumer goods and life sciences sectors, as one would expect. So turning to infringement actions that have been launched so far, the majority of these have been launched in Germany, so in the, in the German local divisions of the UPC, and Munich is a particular, uh, particularly popular forum so far. In terms of revocation actions that have been filed directly at the Central Division, the majority of these have gone to the Paris seat of the Central Division, and this probably reflects the technological uh, subject matter that the revocation actions have related to so far. Now, I think I should stress that it's still early and you know the number of cases is still quite low, so drawing any sort of reliable trends around forum is it's probably it's probably difficult and it's probably too early uh, to do that. In terms of the number of applications and patents that were opted out of the 
jurisdiction of the UPC. This stands at well over 500,000 applications and patents, and the majority of these were opted out during May 2023, so in the last month of the sunrise period before the new system came into effect. Now, the, the architects of the UPC, I think, were surprised by the number of uh, rights that were opted out, um, although I, I believe most practitioners weren't surprised given the uncertainty and you know the potential risks involved around central revocation. It will be interesting as time goes on to see how many rights are continued to, to, to be opted out and also how many opt-outs are actually withdrawn because, because companies decide well actually they might want to enforce at the EPC. So I think it's still really early days. Uh, we are six months in but but really to to have any to make any concrete conclusions on trends or, um, or, or, or other um, observations on the new system is, is, is still going to be difficult. It will be really interesting to see how things stand in another six months time, so after, after the system has been opened uh, for a year, and it will be interesting to see how the court decides on substantive patent law. There have already been some interesting decisions around interim measures, and indeed there are appeals pending at the moment as well. So it'll be really interesting to see how uh, the court deals with some of these early issues and early questions around enforcement and uh, validity. So hope, I hope we will be able to revisit this topic again in six months time and, and provide an update around the 1st of June 2024. Because I think by then we will we will hopefully have a better idea of some of the trends um, that are emerging and also really how the court has decided on uh, matters substantively. Thanks to Zach, Robin, Simone and Paul for their insights on how to leverage the Unified Patent Court. Thanks for listening to our latest episode of Talk IP with RNG and we'll see you again soon.